0: Listener discretion is advised. In the world of true crime, it is very rare for a child to be a murderer. In fact, it is rare that they commit any sort of serious crimes. This is why when these types of cases make the news, these cases stay in the public consciousness. Murder is considered to be one of the worst things a person can do, and when it happens, many times the motivation behind the killing is confusing to most. But when a child commits murder, understanding why is even more challenging. Since there are a lot less children who kill versus adults, there isn't a lot of statistics to tell us why this could happen. But there are some, and these stats are in itself quite disturbing. According to the FBI, youth homicide rates remain the same since the mid-1970s. Their stats show that for adults, 9.98 out of 100 Americans were arrested for homicide in 1982. But the rates for those who were 17 years old were double the rate for all age groups at 22.6 per 100,000 people. Experts say that there isn't a specific type of child killer. One thing many of them have in common, though, is that they see or experience violence within their families or influence group. According to Alan Zentz, who is an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at George Washington University School of Medicine, and Elise Zenoff, who is a professor of law at the same location, there are two noticeable categories for youths under the age of 16 who have committed murder. The first is considered to be a non-empathetic murderer. These children lack the psychological ability to put themselves in someone else's shoes. They have a history of assault reading issues, and an inability to cope with stress. Many have spent time in institutions or have had a parent who did not provide psychological support. The second category is sexual identity conflict murderers. They mostly are males who are mocked for appearing to be more feminine and carry weapons to boost their confidence. These killers come from homes where their mother dominates the household and their father is passive. When they kill, it is passion-based, and many times they felt encouraged by a parent. But other studies tell us that there's a high incidence of brain injury for these children and that the only predictor is a history of violence. Many of these children have a need to feel powerful and have a curiosity of wanting to know what it feels like to kill. They often target those who they feel are weaker than them, and that is why many attack those who are younger than them. Many wonder, if there was intervention beforehand, would a child actually kill? That's a question that we can't answer, but I personally think that there is a reason why these children's behavior is not seriously looked at until it's too late. It has to do in part with adults having an idealized ideology of childhood. We as adults are shocked by a child committing murder, and so much so, we can't wrap our heads around the fact that a child would think this way. We can't fathom that some children become so desperate that they would even consider it. In the tales we will hear today, I am sure that you, like me, will not be able to understand the why.
1: We take this few seconds off to inform you our valued loyal listener. About the best health and fitness podcast shows. From the Nespod Studios. Join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems.
0: In 1968, newspapers in Britain started to report on a crime that was unthinkable. An 11-year-old girl had murdered two little boys. This young girl named Mary Bell ended up serving 12 years for her deeds, but to this day, people wonder what drove her to murder. But when you look into her background, you can see strong hints of what was to come. Mary Flora Bell was born on May 26, 1957, in Northumberland, England. Her life was hard from the very start. Mary's mother was well known as a local sex worker, and she was often absent from the family's home when she worked in Glasgow. When she was gone, she would leave her kids with their father, William. Now, William himself was not the best father. He was an alcoholic who was chronically violent towards those around him. He was a career criminal with a very long arrest record, and he often was neglectful towards his children. Mary grew up feeling unwanted, and for very good reason. Right after her birth, her mother became angry at hospital staff when they brought Mary to her to be held. According to Mary's aunt, Betty started screaming at the staff to take the thing away from her. Concerning William, he married Betty when Mary was a baby. In Mary's early life, she believed that William was her father, but in actuality, it's not known if he actually was. When Mary started to grow up, she constantly suffered from injuries and alleged accidents when she was home alone with her mother. This is why early on, Mary's extended family started to believe that her mother was either purposely negligent or was abusing her daughter. They even believed that it was possible that Betty was going as far as trying to kill her own child. So what were some of the instances that made them think this way? Once Betty accidentally dropped her daughter from a first-floor window, and in another event, she fed her daughter copious amounts of sleeping pills. In even another event, Betty sold Mary to a woman who couldn't have children of her own and that was well-known to be mentally ill. Mary was saved by her older sister, Catherine, who, as a young child herself, traveled alone to take Mary back from this person and brought her back to the family's home. Despite the fact that Betty was clearly abusing her children, she would refuse family when they would beg her to give them Mary. And then it got worse. Betty, who was at this time acting as a dominatrix, allegedly started to allow her customers to sexually abuse her daughter in her sessions. All this started to affect Mary very early on. She started to demonstrate disturbing and unpredictable behaviors. She suffered from severe mood swings and she started to wet the bed. She would verbally and physically fight with other children and attempted to choke or suffocate several children on multiple occasions. After Mary attempted to choke a child by shoving sand down that child's throat, many of the local children became afraid. According to one of Mary's former classmates, those in school with Mary became used to her sudden changes in behavior. They recognized when she was about to become violent when she would stare at an individual. They knew that whoever she was staring at was going to be the next target for Mary's violence. Soon, the children both in her school and her neighborhood stopped hanging out with her. One of the only children who would play with her was the girl who lived next door, Norma. By the time that Mary reached the age of 10 years old, many that knew her thought that she was a very strange child. With everything she experienced in her young life, Mary soon became known as a withdrawn and manipulative child who always seemed to be on the very edge of becoming violent. No one intervened, and if someone did, perhaps what came next would have never happened. On May 11, 1968, a three-year-old boy was found wandering in Mary's neighborhood. He was dazed and bleeding. The little boy later told the police that he was playing with Mary and Norma on the top of an abandoned air raid shelter and that one of the girls pushed him off of the roof to the ground. He fell about seven feet and received a severe laceration to his head. He wasn't sure if it was Norma or Mary who pushed him, but he was certain that he was pushed. That same day, the parents of three little girls reached out to the police that say both Mary and Norma tried to strangle the girls while they played together in a sand pit. That same evening, police interviewed both Norma and Mary about these events. Concerning the young boy, both girls alleged they weren't playing with him at all. They were the ones who found him bleeding after he fell on his own. As for attempting to strangle the three little girls, Norma and Mary's stories did not align. Mary denied knowing anything about what the girls claimed to have happened, but Nora, she did admit that Mary did try to throttle each of the three girls. She said, and I quote, Mary went to one of the girls and said, What happens if you choke someone? Do they die? Then Mary put both hands round the girl's throat and squeezed. The girl started to go purple. I told Mary to stop, but she wouldn't. Then she put her hands round Pauline's throat and she started going purple as well. Another girl, Susan Cormish, came up and Mary did the same to her. So what did the police do with this information? They notified local authorities of both Mary's violent nature and what she did that day. But since Nora and Mary were so young, they only got a warning. No charges of any type were filed. Then 14 days later, Mary struck again the day before her 11th birthday. This time she acted alone. She convinced four-year-old Martin Brown to come with her to an abandoned old home. It was there that she strangled him to death. She left the scene to get Nora, and the two made their way back to the crime scene. But when they arrived, they discovered that several other children who started playing the house found the body of Martin. He was found lying on his back with his arms above his head. Other than some specks of blood and foam around the child's mouth, there were no other immediate signs of violence. A local workman soon came upon the scene and he started to perform CPR on Martin. As he tried to revive the young boy, Marian and Nora appeared in the doorway of the room Martin lay in. The workman told them to leave, and they both went to Martin's aunt's home that was nearby. The two knocked on the door and told her that one of her sister's children had an accident. They said they thought it was Martin, but they weren't sure, since he was covered in blood. The police were called and quickly arrived at the scene. They did not see any obvious signs of what happened to Martin, and as mentioned, there was only a small amount of blood and saliva on his face. Nearby his body, police found an empty bottle of painkillers, and they made the assumption that Martin swallowed the bottle of pills, which resulted in his death. The police ruled Martin's death an accident, but very soon after the child's death, Martin's family suspected that it was no accident. This was because only days later, Mary showed up on their doorstep. She asked to see the boy, and Martin's mother tried to gently explain to her that Martin had passed away. Mary told her that she knew that, and she was there because she wanted to see Martin's body in his coffin. Martin's grieving mother slammed the door in her face. The day after Martin's murder was Mary's 11th birthday, and she chose to spend it doing further crimes. She and Norma decided to break into a nursery school in their neighborhood and vandalize it. They destroyed books, threw desks around, and smeared paint and ink all over the walls. The day after Martin's murder was Mary's 11th birthday, and she chose to spend it doing further crimes. She and Norma decided to break into a nursery school in their neighborhood and vandalize it. They destroyed books, threw desks around, and smeared paint and ink all over the walls. They also left four different notes that claimed responsibility for Martin's murder. They were handwritten, contained foul and bigoted language, and were clearly written by a child. The police dismissed this as tasteless, childish pranks. But the girls weren't done yet. Two days after this incident, the girls decided to play a game of chicken. The girls went to Martin's house, and the door was once again opened by Martin's mom. Mary and Norma asked to see her son, and Martin's mother told them they can't since he was deceased. To this, Mary replied, Oh, I know he's dead. I want to see him in his coffin. She was told to leave. But by now, Mary was not keeping her actions a secret at all. She started telling the kids at her school that she murdered Martin. But due to her reputation as a liar and a show-off, no one believed her. That was, until someone else died.
1: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows. From the Nespod Studios. Join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems
0: Two months after Martin's death, Mary and Norma struck again. On July 31st, the body of three-year-old Brian Howe was found. He was last seen by his parents in the afternoon. He was playing outside their house with one of his siblings, Mary and Nora. When he did not return home after his sibling arrived, Brian's relatives and people from the neighborhood started looking for the boy. When Brian's sister was out looking for her brother, Mary and Norma saw her and said that they could help. As the girls searched, Mary pointed out two concrete blocks and said that they should search there. Now, Nora then stated that Brian was likely not there, so the trio moved on. Brian's body was discovered at about 11 p.m. between those two same large concrete blocks. When police arrived on the scene, the first thing they noticed was a deliberate attempt to conceal the body, but it actually wasn't a very good one. Grass and weeds were thrown on the body in attempts to hide it. Brian's lips were blue-tinged and there were bruises and scratches on his neck. A pair of broken scissors were found close to the child's feet. But when the coroner's report came back concerning Brian, this is when the true shock about this death occurred. When Brian's body cooled after death, it became apparent that someone used a razor blade to cut the letter M into the boy's torso. The coroner also came to the conclusion that due to the lack of force that was used in the murder, the killer was likely a child. The coroner came to the conclusion that Brian died of strangulation and he was killed about seven and a half hours before he was discovered. Brian's killer squeezed the boy's nostril shut with one hand and choked him using the other hand. There were many different puncture wounds that Brian suffered to his legs before he died. Portions of his hair were cut off, and his genitalia were mutilated. Fibers were discovered all over his clothes. These gray and maroon fibers did not match any clothing located in Brian's home, and they belonged to the murderer. Now that a second child was killed, a large scale manhunt was started. Over 1,200 children were questioned concerning their whereabouts during the murders. Mary and Norma both were very interested in this investigation. During their interviews, they also started acting strangely. Police were aware that they were playing with Brian before he disappeared, and during all their interviews, Norma seemed excited while Mary was quiet. Both girls were evasive, and their stories did not match up. Both girls did admit that they played with Brian before he disappeared, but denied seeing him in the afternoon. When they were questioned again the following day, Mary said she now remembered seeing a boy playing with Brian the afternoon of his death, and that that boy was hitting him. She then said the boy was covered with grass and weeds, and he was carrying a pair of scissors. Then, Mary said she saw the boy trying to cut off a cat's tail with those scissors, but he couldn't since the scissors were broken. At this point, only the police knew about the scissors that were found at the crime scene the police immediately questioned the boy that Mary claimed was with Brian. He had a solid alibi. After Mary was seen lurking outside of Brian's home and then seen at his funeral laughing, Norma's parents called the police. They said that their daughter wanted to confess. After police went to her home, Nora told them that Mary brought her to the location where Brian's body was found. When there, Mary told her how she killed Brian and how she enjoyed it. She also described how she cut her initial into the boy's torso and where she hid the razor blade she did it with. She also told her about the scissors she used in the crime. Nora then made a drawing of the wounds on Brian, which matched those on the body. She also took the police to a location where Mary hid the razor blade. The police went to Mary's home to question her again, and they confronted her about the problems with her story. Mary then told the police that they were trying to brainwash her and that she would get a lawyer to get herself out of trouble. That same day, police questioned Norma again, but this time, she really confessed. She was present when Mary murdered Brian. When Mary was strangling him, she said Mary wanted Nora to take over. Nora ran away in fear and left Brian all alone with Mary. Clothing in Nora's and Mary's homes were then examined. The grey fibers on Brian's body and on Martin's body matched one of Mary's dresses. The maroon fibers on Brian's body matched one of Nora's skirts. Both girls were arrested and charged with Brian's murder. In a written statement, Mary admitted that she was present when Brian was killed, but the murder itself was committed by Nora. She then admitted it was her and Nora that broke into the daycare and left the notes after Martin's murder. Both girls underwent a psychological evaluation. It was discovered that Nora was intellectually delayed and a submissive personality. Mary on the other hand was found to be bright, cunning, and prone to sudden mood swings. It was determined that Mary suffered from a psychopathic personality disorder and leaned towards bullying behaviors and violence. Due to Mary showing symptoms of psychopathy, the court determined that she could not be held fully responsible for her actions, even though they determined that she was guilty. She was convicted with manslaughter. The judge deemed Mary as a dangerous person who posed a very grave risk to other children and felt that action had to be taken to protect the public from her. The judge gave her an indefinite sentence in prison, but after serving over 11 and a half years, officials started to prepare Mary for the outside world. In May of 1980, Mary was released. She was given a new name to allow her to start the next part of her life under an assumed identity. Four years after her release, Mary gave birth to a daughter who also was given a new identity by the courts. Their current location is unknown. Now, Nora, she was determined to be an unwilling accomplice who fell under a bad influence. She was acquitted of all charges and was allowed to go home with her parents to move on with her life. Her family did not get new identities as Mary did, but they must have worked very hard on their own to start their lives anew. It seems like after these events, Nora fell off the face of the earth. There are no updates on where she is today. Our next tale starts in a small city located in southeastern Alberta in Canada. Medicine Hat is located on the South Saskatchewan River and is best known for its natural resources. That is why it was nicknamed the Gas City, but it became known for another reason in April of 2006 when it was discovered that the Richardson family were massacred. The only survivor was daughter Jasmine, who was just 12 years old. But soon, the community discovered the true horror of this. The family died at the hands of Jasmine herself, as well as her 23-year-old boyfriend, Jeremy Stenke. Jasmine and Jeremy met at a punk rock concert, and before this, Jasmine was known as an upbeat, happy, and social girl. Her childhood was filled with love from her parents and her younger brother, and it appeared that everything in her life was wonderful. But this all changed after she met Jeremy. Jeremy, his childhood was not as ideal as Jasmine's. His mother was an alcoholic who allowed her partner to abuse Jeremy. He was bullied at school, and by the time Jasmine came into his life, he had already attempted to take his own life. When Jeremy turned 13 years old, he started to develop a persona that he was actually a 300-year-old vampire who wore a vial of blood around his neck. Jasmine was immediately enraptured by the older man and his goth-based lifestyle she became a member of a website that Jeremy was part of called VampireFreaks.com and started wearing goth-style makeup to look much older than she actually was. Jasmine's parents, Mark and Deborah, were very active parents and were very concerned about the changes they saw in their little girl. After they found out about Jeremy, Mark and Deborah knew that this relationship was very inappropriate. They ordered their daughter to stop seeing Jeremy, and when Jasmine continued to see him behind their back, They tried punishing her. It didn't work, since the couple were still communicating behind Jasmine's parents' back. With Jasmine's parents preventing them from being together, the couple was very, very angry. Jeremy posted online via his blogging platform concerning this. He said, and I quote, My lover's rents are totally unfair. They say that they really care. They don't know what is going on. They just assume. Their throats I want to slit. Finally, there shall be silence. Their blood shall be payment. Now hearing this, you are all likely thinking that it was 23-year-old Jeremy that brought up the murder. Well, it wasn't. It was 12-year-old Jasmine. According to police reports, Jasmine was the one who proposed a plan that they kill her family. In an email, Jasmine told Jeremy that the plan began with her killing them and then she would live with him. Jeremy responded to her email by saying, and I quote again, Well, I love your plan, but we need to get a little more creative with, like, details and stuff. As the couple started counting down to enacting their plan, Jasmine started telling her friends about how she and Jeremy were going to kill her parents. Everyone thought it was a joke, but it wasn't. On April 22, 2006, Jasmine and Jeremy watched the 1994 Oliver Stone movie, Natural Born Killers, to get their heads in the correct mindset. Now, if you haven't seen it, This movie is about a young couple that goes on a murder spree, but that wasn't how the couple saw it. They thought it was a perfect love story. Then, at about 1 p.m. on April 23rd, a young boy went to see if his friend Tyler, who was the 8-year-old brother Jasmine, was home. He went to the door, and no one answered, so the child peeked through one of the home's windows. That's when he thought he saw a dead body inside. The boy ran home and he told his mother, who immediately called the police. Soon afterwards, the bodies of Mark and Deborah were discovered in the basement of their home. The body of their son, Tyler, was found upstairs. When it was realized that Jasmine was nowhere to be found, it was immediately thought that she also was a victim and may have been kidnapped. Police started combing for clues and attempts to save Jasmine. As said by Inspector Brent Sekondiak, who was first on the scene, and I quote, it wasn't even in the realm of possibility that she was an accused. Police quickly discovered that Deborah was first to die. She was killed after being stabbed over a dozen times. Mark had fought back against his killer with a screwdriver that was found at the scene, but he succumbed to his injuries from also being stabbed. Tyler, on the other hand, was killed differently. His killer slashed his throat and the boy's body was found in his own bed. Thinking that Jasmine's life was in immediate danger, the police issued an Amber Alert. For those of you listening in areas that do not have Amber Alerts, it is a system that provides the public with immediate and current information about a child abduction. This is broadcast widely via TV, radio, and through wireless devices. The goal is to bring the situation to as many eyes and ears as possible to help find the individual who's at risk. Police then started to search Jasmine's room and her school locker to try to gain some insight on where she could be. This is when police quickly realized that Jasmine was not in danger at all. She was actually the prime suspect. After reading the emails between Jasmine and Jeremy, investigators were horrified to discover that a 12-year-old girl killed her family with the help of her 23-year-old boyfriend. Police were able to quickly find Jeremy's truck, which was seen in the town of Leader, which is in the province of Saskatchewan, about 81 miles or 130 kilometers away. The couple were inside and were promptly arrested. They were both charged with three premeditated murders. Also charged was one of Jeremy's friends, Casey Lancaster. Casey was not charged with murder, though. The 21-year-old was charged with being an accessory after the fact since she drove the couple away from the crime scene in her vehicle and disposed of the evidence of the murders. She pled guilty to a charge of obstruction of justice and received one year of house arrest as a plea bargain to testify against Jeremy and Jasmine. Now that Jasmine was no longer a missing child but charged with murder, her name could no longer be published due to the Youth Criminal Justice Act in Canada. In addition, according to this act, the youngest age that a person could be charged with a crime is 12 years old. If convicted, individuals under the age of 14 years cannot be sentenced as an adult. They also cannot receive a sentence more than 10 years. At trial, Jasmine pled not guilty. She alleged that she had hypothetical conversations about murdering her entire family, but never planned on doing it. But the jury, they didn't buy it. Jasmine was found guilty of three counts of first-degree murder and was given the maximum sentence for a child. She was sentenced to a maximum of 10 years in jail with credit for the 18 months she already spent in police custody. This was followed with an additional four years in a psychiatric institution with four and a half additional years under community supervision. Now, Jeremy, on the other hand, he was prosecuted as an adult. He admitted to killing Jasmine's family while having a conversation with an undercover police officer when he was in custody. With this information, Jeremy was found guilty by jury of three counts of first degree murder and was sentenced to three life sentences to be served concurrently. He is eligible for parole in 2031. But if you guys do the math here, Jasmine should be out of prison, and she is. While in jail, Jasmine continued her education and started taking university classes in the later years of her sentence. She was released from the psychiatric hospital that she was ordered to stay at in 2011, and by 2012, it was said that her rehabilitation was going extremely well after receiving treatment for conduct and oppositional defiant disorders. She expressed great remorse for what she did, and medical professionals deemed that she was being truthful. By 2016, she completed her sentence and all further restrictions were removed after her final sentence review. But here is the interesting thing. When Jasmine and Jeremy were in prison, they would exchange letters promising each other that they would be together one day. Not one of those letters expressed any remorse for their actions. So where is Jasmine today? Well, no one knows for sure. As with Mary, Jasmine changed her name after prison and she left the area. As far as anyone knows, she hasn't re-offended, but since her name has changed, no one can be sure. The one thing for sure is that no one wants her back in Medicine Hat. As former Medicine Hat Mayor Ted Klugson told CBC News, and I quote, It was a terrible place for her, and if she ever got found out or recognized, it probably wouldn't be in her best interest. She tarnished our community and hurt a lot of people.